Hello. My name is Kristen Marchand, and joining me tonight in this lovely old train station in Barry's Bay are Jeff Bowman, Leslie Betts, Lois LaSole, Brian and Carol Peterson, Linda Schulist, Lynn Stewart, and Martin Yakabuski. We are all members of the Apiango Radio Flyers, a new Apiango Radio's theater troupe supported by the Station Keepers, the volunteer group that keeps this 125-year-old railway station alive and kicking, and who are dedicated, among other things, to helping us revive the golden age of radio drama and comedy. For those of you who were here for our inaugural show, War of the Worlds, The Battle of Brudenell, you know we can put more than a little life into our local history, even if it means starting out with a dash of fiction. Well, tonight, we're at it again. We've based tonight's show on a classic work of fiction, Leo Tolstoy's A Russian Christmas Party. Only this time, we've adapted that short story so that we can bring it home to our very own Upper Ottawa Valley. Yet, instead of picking just any old names out of a hat to replace the Russian names used by Tolstoy, we thought we'd pick some names from around here that sound possibly Russian. So let me tell you about Ivan Ganjabal. He was an honest-to-goodness, real person who first settled in these parts in the 1860s, in what was then Old Barry's Bay, but which is now called Siberia, in honor of, you guessed it, Ivan Ganjabal. Legend has it that he fought for the British during the famous charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War during the 1850s. But if true, he fought against the Russians, even though some people still think Ivan was Russian himself. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ivan Ganjabal was born in India, just like John Watson, the famous founder of Rockingham, just down the road. Only Ivan came from Kashmir, northern India, where there remains a big lake named after his family, Lake Ganjabal. And Ivan isn't the only local historical person in our story. Most people have never heard of the three ski brothers, Big Jim, Little Bob, and Eddie, or a hunter by the name of John Dennison. Well, the fact is they all lived and worked up here during the second half of the 19th century. John Dennison was a famous local hunter who settled at Dennison's Bridge before it was known as Combermere. He also had a cabin on Lake Opiango where, tragically, he was killed by a bear. And there actually was a huge supply depot on Tatler Lake, and though you won't find the name Abiyunga on any modern Canadian map, Abiyunga is the original name for the whole River Valley, according to an 1829 local history document. Mount Abiyunga remains the highest point of land in all of southern Ontario. So you'd think, with all that going for it, somebody would have given that old hill near Tatler Lake that once was used for the highest fire tower in all of Algonquin Park a name like Mount Abiyunga. Well, tonight, we have. Call it fact, or call it fiction as you will. But I digress. Let's get back to our Christmas love story that might even put Hallmark's Christmas movies to shame. Here it is, an Apiango Christmas. Hagen <laughs> Ganderball's affairs were going from bad to worse. He was of a warm, generous nature, with unlimited faith in his teamsters, 
and hence was blind to the mismanagement and dishonesty which had sapped his fortune. The possessor of a handsome home in Ottawa, the owner of a rich stud farm in Nepean, he also had the adulation of his peers, due always to any self-made man, but he was nevertheless on the verge of ruin. He had given up his appointment to a royal commission which had kept him in Ottawa year-round for over three years because it entailed too many expenses and too little time taking care of his own business. And yet, since leaving Ottawa over five years previous, there had been no improvement in the state of his finances. If anything, they had gotten decidedly worse. Long after they had left the capital as teenagers, Nicholas and Natasha, Ivan's oldest son and only daughter, had often found their father and mother in anxious consultation, talking in low tones about what must have happened to the money from the sale of their Ottawa house and all of their property in the neighborhood, including the stud farm, which had been a near-fatal blow to the sanity of the old man. Having thus retired back to what he affectionately called his Dhaka at the foot of Mount Abiyunga, near the headwaters of the Opiongo River, Ivan had refrained from giving lavish parties or boundless entertainments. Life at the seasonal Dhaka had now become their life all year round. It was much less gay than in past years when the family spent only the winters there. Still, his square timber mansion on Tatler Lake was like a palace to anyone who saw it. Built in a cruciform from 40-foot, knotless, white pine timbers, the 10,000 square foot building had flagstone flooring throughout, a cathedral ceiling, and a central great room with a huge square fireplace with hearths on all four sides. Each hearth faced a different wing, one with storerooms and offices, one with a huge kitchen and dining hall to serve as teamsters who passed through each winter day. And the final two wings were both permanent living quarters, one for Ivan's own family, and one for other folks who seemed to rotate through as Ivan's temporary house guests, although some had become permanent fixtures in the household. The Dhaka itself occupied only one side of a very large quadrangle that overlooked Patner Lake, where the Opiongo River passed down from Lake Opiongo towards Victoria Lake. Ivan's mansion was set back so that it was bordered on both sides by a hodgepodge of buildings, collectively known as the Mount Abiyoga Depot. There were 20 outbuildings, horse stables, hay barns, an oat shed, a blacksmith shop, three harness shops, a farrier shed, and others, all necessary to keep 200 horses and 100 teamsters alive and kicking seven days a week, and all contracted to deliver essential supplies to the nearby timber shanties belonging to local lumber barons. The entire Mount Abiyunga Depot was dedicated solely to bringing those supplies over a web-like network of winter tote roads known as the Abiyunga Trace. Ivan's convoy of winter sleighs would load up every day between November and March between Lake Calabogie and Mount St. Patrick, the main supply district for the timber trade. And after three days' travel through a wide variety of winter sleigh trails across frozen lakes and along old native portages, Ivan's sleighs, chock full with pork barrels, flour, bales of hay and bags of oats, arrived at Mount Abiyunga. In fact, if it were not for that winter sleigh traffic between Mount St. Patrick and Mount Abiyunga, there would be no timber trade in the area at all. Somebody had to feed those thousands of lumberjacks and their horse teams that cut logs every winter in the Opiongo, Madawaska, Bonacare, and York River Valleys. So it was never a surprise to Ivan's family 
if a dozen barn managers, blacksmiths, farriers, teamsters, or lumberjacks sat down to dinner at Ivan's table each and every evening, all winter long. There were also others to feed, dependents, friends, and intimates, who were regarded almost as part of the family. Locals, like a professional hunter, John Dennison, and his wife, or Lubitz, the barn boss, and his family, and Basil Stubbs, whom everyone called Old Stubby, a former tutor of both Natasha and Nicholas, as well as Sonia, the latter an adoptive native orphan, who was Natasha's playmate growing up, and who remained her closest friend at the depot. And it was Sonia, who was now old enough and well-educated enough to be the only real tutor of Peter, Ivan's youngest son, himself a strapping lad of nearly 16. There were others who found it simpler to live at Ivan's expense rather than at their own. Thus, though there were no more grand balls of the kind the household knew in Ottawa, life was carried on almost as expensively as of old, and neither the master nor the mistress at Mount Abiyunga ever imagined any change possible. Recently, Nicholas had added to their expense. He had come home after two years of being away in Montreal, where he was a commissioned officer in the 7th Battalion Fusiliers. But he had recently broken his arm, preparing for what he thought was to be the greatest adventure of his life, the planned rescue of Lord Gordon, stranded up the Nile somewhere in the Sudan. Nicholas's best friend, Gus Dennison, commissioned at the same time, and as luck would have it, was engaged to Natasha. Even he had gotten to go to Egypt on the adventure of a lifetime, but not so Nicholas. He had been home for a month, supposedly to let his broken arm mend, but really, he was no good company, too often going off by himself, and as everyone suspected, to bemoan his fate. And not always careful of the times, he'd often break up a sleigh team and ride one of Ivan's best horses, Opiongo style, bareback, out into the forest to escape his disappointment. The young man's military commission, one that Ivan originally was delighted to pay for, now, in the current days of tight dollars, had added in a most untimely manner to Ivan's business expenses. Still, Ivan continued to play 45 almost every Saturday night, and absentmindedly let his cards be seen by his friends, who were always ready to make up his table and relieve him, without hesitation, of more than a few dollars, which for more than one approximated their principal income. Regardless, the old man marched on blindfolded through the tangle of his financial difficulties, trying to conceal them, but only succeeding in augmenting them, having neither the courage nor the patience to untie the knots of his financial strangulation. The loving heart by his side foresaw their children's ruin, but she could not accuse her husband, who was, alas, too old for amendment. She could only seek some remedy for the disaster. And from her point of view, there was but one. Nicholas' marriage to some rich man's daughter. She clung desperately to this last chance of salvation. But if her son should refuse such a selection that she might propose to him, every hope of reinstating their fortune would vanish. The young lady whom old Mrs. Gantwell had in view was one of the Skeed girls. Like Ivan, the three Skeed brothers, James, Robert, and Edward, had come up into the headwaters of the Madawaska in 1840, more than 15 years before Ivan himself. The Skeeds had not only given Ivan his first job in 1859, they became his mentors and strongest supporters when he told them he wanted to go into business for himself. In the ensuing years, 
They had all made their fortunes, all except Edward, who was drowned barely a month after getting married. Big Jim was now a much-respected senator in Ottawa, a confidant of Sir John A., the Prime Minister. And Little Bob ran a teamster operation up on the Petawawa that had two or three times as many horses as Ivan. So it was on Julie's ski that Ivan's wife had set her sights. The Ganjibals had known Julie from infancy, and who, by the death of her second brother, had suddenly come into great wealth. Mrs. Gangeval herself wrote to Julie's mother in Nepean to ask her whether she could regard the match with favor and received a most flattering answer. Indeed, Madame Skeed invited Nicholas to Skeed's Barclay Depot for, as it happened, Julie would be touring there with her father just before the Christmas holiday, and so it would give Julie an opportunity of deciding for herself. Nicholas had often heard his mother say, tears in her eyes, that her dearest wish was to see him married. The fulfillment of that wish would sweeten her remaining days, she would say, adding covert hints as to the charming girl who would suit him exactly. One day, Mrs. Gantual took the opportunity of speaking plainly to Nicholas of Julie's charms and merits and urged him to spend a short time at Bark Lake before Christmas. Nicholas, who had no difficulty in guessing what his mother was aiming at, persuaded her to be explicit on the matter and she owned frankly that her hope was to see their sinking fortunes restored by his marriage with dear Julie. Then, mother, if I loved a penniless girl, you would desire me to sacrifice my feelings and my honor to marry solely for money? No, no, you have misunderstood me. I wish only for your happiness. Oh, do not cry, mother. You have only to say that you really and truly desire it, and you know I would give my life to see you happy, that I would sacrifice everything, even my feelings. But this was not what his mother wanted to hear. She asked for no sacrifice. She wanted none. She would sooner have sacrificed herself if it had been possible. Say no more about it. You do not understand. Nicholas could not say what he was thinking. How could she think of such a marriage? Does she think that because Sonia is poor, I do not love her? And yet I should be a thousand times happier with her than Julie. So, Nicholas did not go to Bark Lake that Christmas of 1884 after all. He stayed up at Mount Abiyunga and never went to meet Julie. His mother never again mentioned Julie. Still, because of what Nicholas had said about some imagined poor girl, Mrs. Gangeval ultimately set to wondering who he possibly could have met. Was there someone? Mm, of course there was. There was Sonia. It had to be Sonia. Mrs. Gangeval was certain of it. From then on, Nicholas' mother thought she saw something between them. How could she have missed it all this time? And so from then on, she could not help being annoyed with Sonia. Every little thing the girl did seemed to bother her. In the end, Mrs. Gangeval slowly began treating the poor girl with silence at best, or at worst, with a cold familiarity. The old woman couldn't help herself, even though she knew it was altogether wrong of her to do so. Sometimes she reproached herself for those continual pinpricks towards Sonia, and became even more vexed with the poor girl for submitting to them with such wonderful humility and sweetness for taking every opportunity of showing her devoted gratitude, and for loving Nicholas with a faithful and disinterested affection, which commanded Mrs. Gangeval's grudging admiration. A day or two before Christmas, one of Ivan's teamsters brought a letter up from the post office at Bark Lake. 
The letter was well over two months old, dated October the 7th, 1884, and postmarked Alexandria, Egypt. This regiment is now fully provisioned for the trip up the Nile to rescue Lord Gordon. It's the fourth letter he has written since his departure, and he hopes I have received the other three. He ought long since to have been on his way home, he said, but delay after delay kept prolonging the rescue mission to the point where he and others wondered if they should ever get there in time. He said that was just not how he felt. Almost every Ottawa Valley raftsman he had spoken to felt the same way. He said some fellow from down below Palma Rapids said that if they all worked that slow on the Madawaska each spring, there'd be no timber ever gotten down the river. Natasha was so much in love with Gus that his words about military matters seemed all gibberish when she first read them. It was her deep passion for Gus that had made her daydreams happy and had hitherto opened up all the bright influences of her young life. But now she paused and thought about the four months since their parting. She seemed to wake up on Gus's repeated use of the word delay. She fell into a state of extreme frustration and gave way to it completely. She bewailed her hard fate. She bewailed the time that was slipping away and lost to her, while her heart ached with the dull craving to love and to be loved. Nicholas, too, had that feeling of his life being on hold, as if he was to be met with delay after delay while attempting to get on with the adventure of his life. He had spent nearly all his leave, and, by New Year's Day, was now looking forward to returning to his regiment. His arm had healed, and so he anticipated his departure. But that, too, had added extra gloom to an already saddened household. So when Christmas finally came with the endless string of neighbors and teamsters with their regular compliments of the season, there was something missing for both Natasha and Nicholas. It was not just the lack of new clothes which usually made their first appearance Christmas Eve. As the old grandfather clock tick-tocked away their lives, nothing more than usual was seen to be happening. Nothing more extraordinary than 20 degrees of frost, a brilliant sunset, a still atmosphere, and as night came on, a glorious starry sky. After dinner, when everyone had settled into his or her own corner once more, ennui reigned supreme throughout the house. Nicholas, who had been paying a round of visits in the neighborhood, if only to distract himself from his woes, was fast asleep by the fireplace. Across the roaring flames, old Ivan had followed his son's example on the opposite side of the hearth and was snoring away. Sonia, seated at a table by the plate glass window overlooking Tatler Lake, was copying a drawing. Mrs. Gangeval was playing out of patience, and nine-toed Rudy, the old farrier who'd been knocked on the head with the forge fellows one too many times, and who had lost his left big toe, how, nobody, not even he could tell, sat with his peevish face, sitting in a window with two old women. Even he did not say a word. Suddenly, Natasha came into the great room, and after leaning over Sonia for a moment or two to examine her friend's work, went over to her mother and stood in front of her. Mrs. Gangeball looked up. Why are you wandering about like a soul in torment? What do you want? Want? I want him. Now, here, at once. Her mother gazed at her anxiously. Don't look at me like that. You'll make me cry. Sit down here. Mama, I want him. I need him. Oh, why must I die of weariness? 
Natasha's voice broke and tears started from her eyes. She hastily left the great room and went into the kitchen, where Isabel, an old servant, was scolding one of the scullery maids who had just come in breathless from out of doors. Here's a time for all things. You've had enough time for play. Oh, leave her in peace, Isabel. Run away, Misha. Go. Natasha went into the hall. An old roustabout called Freddy was playing cards with two of the chickadee boys. Her entrance stopped their game and they rose. She had no idea what to say to them and so she spoke haltingly. Neil, would you please go, go, go find me a chicken. And you, Mick, um, a handful of corn. <laughs> a handful of corn? No need to question. Go. Go at once. And you, Freddy, can you get me a piece of chalk? Natasha just as quickly bolted and went back into the kitchen and ordered Philomena to get the tea ready, though it was not tea time. She wanted to try her power over Philomena, the new cook, the most morose and disobliging of all the servants. Philomena could not believe her ears and asked her if she really meant tea. When she was told, yes, rather curtly, Philomena unmuttered under her breath. What next will their young majesty want? Natasha never heard her. She was gone again like a flash. No one gave so many orders as Natasha. No one sent them on so many errands at once. As soon as any of the help came in sight, she seemed to invent some want or message. She could not help it. It seemed as though Natasha wanted to try her power over them, to see whether some fine day one or another would not rebel against her tyranny. But, on the contrary, they always flew to obey her more readily than anyone else. And now what shall I do? Where shall I go? She slowly went along the corridor, where she presently met Nine-Toed Rudy, the depot buffoon. Nine-Toed, if I ever have children, what will they be? You? Fleas. Fleas and grasshoppers. You can depend on it. Oh, <laughs> oh good God, have mercy. Have mercy. Wherever I go, it's always, always the same. I'm so weary. What shall I do? Skipping lightly from step to step, she went upstairs and dropped in on the Lubitzes. The two older girls were off work and sitting chatting with their parents. Dessert, consisting of dried fruit, was on the table, and they were eagerly discussing the cost of moving to Montreal or Ottawa, trying to decide which would be more expensive after the move. Natasha took a seat for a moment, listened with pensive attention, and then jumped up again. The island of Madagascar. Madagascar. Just as suddenly, she left the room without answering Mrs. Lubitz, who was utterly mystified by Natasha's strange exclamation. She next met her little brother, Peter, and his companion, both excitedly counting some fireworks which were to be let off later that evening. Peter, carry me downstairs. Before he could answer, <laughs> Natasha sprang upon his back, throwing her arms around his neck, and laughing and galloping, they scrambled along to the head of the stairs. Thank you. That will do. Madagascar. Jumping down, Natasha ran down the flight of stairs and halfway down <laughs> rode the banister to the ground floor. After thus inspecting her dominions, testing her power, and convincing herself that her subjects were docile and that there was no novelty to be got out of them, Natasha settled herself in the darkest corner of the great room with her mandolin and tried to sort out an air from a song that she and Gus had heard together during the Christmas they had first met in Montreal. The uncertain notes 
which her unpracticed fingers sketched out, would have struck the least experienced ear as wanting in harmony and musical accuracy, while to her, her excited imagination they brought a whole train of memories. Leaning against the wall and half hidden by a cabinet, with her eyes fixed on a thread of light that came under the door from the rooms beyond, she listened in ecstasy and dreamed of the past. Sonia crossed the room with an empty glass in her hand. Natasha glanced round at her and again fixed her eyes on the streak of light. She had the strange feeling of having once before gone through the same experience, sat in the exact same place, surrounded by the exact same details, and had watched Sonia pass, carrying the exact same tumbler. Yes, it was exactly the same. Sonia, what time is it? What's that tune? Natasha played a few notes. What? Are you there? I, I do not know. Unless it's maybe Silent Night? Natasha did not want to say what was on her mind. It was so exactly, but Sonia was startled. Yet she was smiling so gently. There's something in her which is quite lacking in me. Just as suddenly, Natasha shook off her thoughts and spoke up. No, you're quite out of it. It's a chorus from, from Listen. Where are you going? For some fresh water to finish my drawing. Oh, you're always busy. Where's Nicholas? Uh, asleep, I think. Go and wake him, Sonia. Tell him to come and sing. Sonia went and did as she was asked, and Natasha relapsed into dreaming and wondering how it all happened. Not being able to solve the puzzle, she drifted into reminiscence once more. She could see him, him, and feel his impassioned eyes fixed upon her face. Oh, make haste back. I'm so afraid you won't come yet. Besides, it's all very well and I'm growing old. I shall be quite different from what I am now. Who knows? Perhaps he will come today. Perhaps he's already here. Here in the great room. Perhaps he came yesterday and I've forgotten. Natasha rose, laid down her mandolin, and went into the next room. All the household party were seated around the tea table. Denison, the hunter, old Stubby, the tutor, various house guests, the help. They were waiting on one another, but there was no Gus. Ah, here she is. Come and sit down here. Natasha stopped instead by her mother without heeding his bidding. Oh, Mama, bring him to me. Give him to me soon, very soon. Natasha slid down into her mother's big, comfortable armchair and squeezed in beside her, as if she thought she were again the frightened child she often had been. Then she quieted down and listened to the others, again wanting to speak her mind but not doing so, preferring to keep her thoughts to herself. Good God, always the same people, always the same thing. Papa holds his cup as he always does and blows his tea to cool it as he did yesterday and as he will do tomorrow. Natasha felt a sort of dull rebellion against them all. She hated them for always being the same. After tea, Sonia, Natasha, and Nicholas huddled together in their favorite snug corner of the great room. That was where they often talked freely with each other. Do you ever feel, Nicholas, as if there was nothing left to look forward to? 
as if you had had all your share of happiness and were not so much weary as utterly dull? Of course I have. Very often I've seen my friends and fellow officers in the highest spirits and been just as jolly myself and suddenly been struck so dull and dismal and so hated life that I've wondered whether we were not all to die at once. I remember one day, for instance, when I was with the regiment, the band was playing, and I had such a fit of melancholy that I never even thought of going to the promenade. Oh, how well I understand that. I recollect once, once when I was a little girl, I was punished for having eaten some plums, I think. I had not done it, and you were all dancing, and I was left alone in the schoolroom. Oh, how I cried. Cried because I was so sorry for myself and so vexed with you all for making me so unhappy. I remember. And I went to comfort you and did not know how. We were funny children then. I had a toy with bells that jingled, and I made you a present of it. Do you remember? Long before that, when we were no bigger than my hand, when our uncle called us into his room, where it was quite dark, and suddenly we saw... A Negro? To be sure. I see him now. And to this day, I wonder whether it was a dream or reality or mere fancy invented afterwards. He had white teeth and stared at us with his black eyes. Do you remember him, Sonia? Yes. Yes, but very dimly. But Papa and Mama have always declared that no Negro ever came to the house. And the eggs. Do you remember the eggs we used to roll up at Easter? And one day how two little grinning old women came up through the floor and began to spin round the table? Of course. And how Papa used to put on his fur coat and fire off his gun from the balcony? And don't you remember when... And so they went on recalling, one after the other, not the bitter memories of old age, but the bright pictures of early childhood which float and fade on a distant horizon of poetic vagueness midway between reality and dreams. Sonia remembered being frightened once at the sight of Nicholas in his braided jacket, and her nurse promising her that she should someday have a frock trimmed from top to bottom. And they told me you, Sonia, had been found in the garden under a cabbage. I dared not say it wasn't true, but it puzzled me tremendously. The door opened, and a young woman named Pauline put in her head, exclaiming the chicken had been caught and was now ready. I don't want it now. Send it away again, Pauline. Dennison, the old hunter, meanwhile came into the room, picked up a mandolin, and made it sound discordantly. John, play us something Christmassy. How quiet you young people are. Yes, we're here studying philosophy. Natasha, Nicholas, and Sonia went on talking of their dreams while Dennison began playing on the mandolin. Eventually, Natasha got up and crossed the room on tiptoe, seized the lantern that was burning on the table, and carried it into the next room. Then she stole back to her seat. It was now quite dark in the large room, except for the flickering firelight, but did not reach much into their corner. Their silhouettes were mixed with the silvery moonbeams that came in at the wide windows and lay in broad sheets on the floor. Do you know... When I go on remembering one thing beyond another, I go back so far, so far, that at last I remember things that happened before I was born. And that is metempsychosis, 
The Egyptians believed that our souls had once inhabited the bodies of animals and were returned to animals again after our death. I do not believe that, but I'm quite sure that we were angels once, somewhere there beyond, or perhaps even here. And that is the reason we remember a previous existence. May I join the party? If we were once angels, how is it that we have fallen lower? Lower? Who says that it's lower? Who knows what I was? The soul is immortal, and I am to live forever in the future. I must have existed in the past. So I have eternity behind me, too. Yes, but it's very difficult to conceive of that eternity. Why? After today comes tomorrow, and then the day after, and, and so on forever. Yesterday has been... Tomorrow will be... Natasha, now it's your turn. Sing me something. What are you doing in that corner like a party of conspirators? Oh, I'm not at all in the humor, Mama. Nevertheless, Natasha rose, and, standing as usual in the middle of the room where the voice sounded best, Natasha sang her mother's favorite song, The Huron Carol. T'was in the moon of winter time when all the birds had fled That mighty Gechi Manitou sent angel choirs instead Before the light the stars grew dim and wandering hunters heard the hymn Jesus your King is born, Jesus is born in excelsis gloria Though she had said she was not in the humor, it was long since Natasha had sung so well as she did that evening, and long before she sang so well again. Her father, who was talking over business with Red Mitch by the front vestibule, hurriedly gave him some final instructions as soon as he heard the first note from his only daughter. Then, like some schoolboy scrambling through his tasks to get to his play, he tried to hurry Red Mick out the front door. But Red Mick did not go. Both men stood in silence and listened with evident wonder. Nicholas did not take his eyes off his sister's face and only breathed when she took breath. Sonia was under the spell of that exquisite voice and thinking of the gulf of difference that lay between her and her friend, fully conscious that she could never exercise such fascination. Old Mrs. Gangeball had paused in her patience. A sad, fond smile played on her lips. Her eyes were full of tears, and she shook her head, remembering her own youth, looking forward to her daughter's future and reflecting on her strange prospects of marriage. Dennison, sitting by her side, listened with rapture, his eyes half-closed. She really has a marvelous gift. She's nothing to learn. Such power, such sweetness. And how much I fear for her happiness. In her mother's heart, old Mrs. Gangeball could feel the flame that must someday be fatal to her child's peace. Natasha was still singing when Peter dashed noisily into the room to announce in triumphant tones that a party of mummers had come. Idiot! <sighs> Natasha began to sob so violently that it was some time before she could recover herself. It's nothing, Mom. Really nothing at all. Only Peter, fri Peter frightened me. Nothing more. All the servants had dressed up, some as bears, Turks, Arabians, or fine ladies, others as mongrel monsters. Bringing with them the chill of the night outside, they did not at first venture any farther than the hall. By degrees, however, they took courage. Pushing each other forward for self-protection, they all soon came into the great room. 
Once there, their shyness thawed. They became expansively merry, and singing and dancing and sports were soon the order of the day. Mrs. Gangibal, after looking at them and identifying them all, went back to her big easy chair with its covering of bearskin, leaving her husband, whose jovial face encouraged them to enjoy themselves. The young people had all vanished. But half an hour later, an old marquise with patches appeared on the scene wearing a woman's wig, none other than Nicholas. Peter, as a Turk, a clown, Denison, a hussar, Natasha, and a Circassian, Sonia. Both girls had blackened their eyebrows and given themselves mustaches with burned cork. After being received with well-feigned surprise and recognized more or less quickly, the girls, who were very proud of their costumes, unanimously declared that they must go and display them elsewhere. Nicholas, who was dying to take them all for a long sleigh ride in his father's best cutter, proposed that, as the winter tote roads were in splendid order, they should go down to the old Aylan Lake Depot, or, better, over to the Egan Estate on the Madawaska with a team of their best horses, if only to disturb the peace and quiet of old Mr. Stultz, the caretaker. You will do no such thing. You will not disturb that nice old man, and that will be all. Why, he has not even room for you all to get into the house. If you must go out, go up to Pete Skeed's, up on the Narrows. Old Mrs. Skeed, who was Julie's aunt, was christened Patricia, but everybody in the Avianga knew her as Pete. A widow who refused to leave the neighborhood after her husband Eddie Skeed was drowned, her house was a favorite among all who knew her. It was always full of dogs and guests of all ages. It was part of the old McLaughlin Depot at the Narrows on Lake Opiongo, where she was surrounded on all sides with two huge bunkhouses and a cookery for the hundreds of teamsters who passed through on their way to the Neswavik or Petawawa River Valley. But, best of all, from Mrs. Gangibal's point of view, it was only a few miles from Mount Abiyunga. A capital idea, my dear. I will dress up in costume and go too. I will wake them up, I warrant you. But this did not at all meet his wife's views. Perfect madness! For you to go out with your gouty feet in such cold weather? It's sheer folly. Her husband gave way after Denison spoke up and volunteered to bring his wife along to chaperone the girls. Sonia's was by far the most successful disguise. Her fierce eyebrows and mustache were wonderfully becoming. Her pretty features gained expression, and she wore the dress of a man with unexpected swagger and smartness. Something in her inmost soul told her that this evening would seal her fate. In a few minutes, Ivan's best cutter and three other sleighs were prepared, each with a team of horses, all their harnesses jangling with bells. One, a span of bays, the second, a set of pieballs, the third, a mixed pair. And then there was Nicholas's favorite, a majestic pair of black stallions, one called Magic, the other, Knits. All four sleighs drew up in a line before the Gangival Daka, their runners creaking and crunching over the frozen snow, all eight horses snorting and puffing their delight. Natasha was the first to tune her spirits to the pitch of this carnival freak. This mirth, in fact, proved highly infectious and reached its height of tumult and excitement when the party went down the steps and packed themselves into the sleighs, laughing and shouting to each other at the tops of their voices. Nicholas, in his fuzzy wig and marquise costume, over which he had thrown his officer's cloak fastened with a belt round the waist, stood gathering up the reins. The moon was shining brightly, reflected in the plating of the harness and in the horse's anxious eyes, 
as they turned their heads in uneasy amazement at the noisy group that clustered under the dark porch. Natasha and Sonia both sat behind Nicholas while Peter and Mrs. Dennison climbed laughingly behind John Dennison. The rest of the mummers packed into a third and fourth sleighs. Lead the way, John, for you won't hold it long after we hit the open lake. John Dennison feigned a look of shock and retorted that he'd wait for Nicholas once they hit Annie Bay and the shore of Lake Opiongo, but he'd wait there for no more than 30 seconds. And with that, Dennison and Nicholas were both off with the simultaneous crack of two whips into the cold night air, for neither could ever lay a whip to a horse. They knew their horses well and knew that the horses only needed to hear the crack of the whip in the night air to know what it meant. Dennison's sleigh led out from the depot and up along the banks of the Obiango River. As he gathered speed, the sleigh swayed and strained. The runners, which the frost had already glued to the ground, creaked, the sleigh bells rang out, the horses closed up for a pull, and off they went over the glittering hard snow, flinging it up right and left like a spray of powdered sugar. Nicholas drew up behind, and the others followed along the narrow way with no less jagging and creaking. While they all drove the well-worn path of the choke road along the riverbank, each under the full moon and a clear, brilliant sky, shadows from the fall and tufts of white and red pine lay along the roadway. All four teamsters were giddy the thoughts of hitting the shoreline, then overpowering the others, leaving them behind on the wide and spotless plain of frozen Lake Obiango as it spread out on all sides its whiteness broken by myriads of flashing sparks and spangles of reflected moonlight. Suddenly, a rut caught Dennison's sleigh and it jolted violently, and then the others in succession. They fell away from their intrusive clatter breaking the supreme and solemn silence of the night. Oh, moose tracks! Look, a moose on the loose! Natasha's voice pierced the frozen air like an arrow, quivered with her robust laughter and giddy excitement. Nicholas. <laughs> Nicholas turned around to look at the pretty face with his black mustache under the sable hood. Looking at once so far away and yet so close in the moonshine. It's not shiny at all. Cody, what is the matter? Nothing. Nicholas turned back around, facing towards magic and mist, with their great puffs of breath, sweeping back over their sparkling black withers like clouds of smoke chugging from a steam engine, all made the more dramatic with the sweet jangle of sleigh bells that seemed to sing out their own inscrutable tune of Christmas majesty. When they eventually got down onto Annie Bay, named years before after John Dennis's daughter, a variety of well-worn tracks lay at their feet, beaten and plowed by hundreds of hoops and polished to a fine hardness with the runners from hundreds of timber and supply slaves. Nicholas shifted his team away from those well-worn tracks and onto virgin snow. His team, without provocation of any long oaks, but as if by instinct, began to pull away and gain on the lead sleigh. Magic, turning his head, while still galloping wildly, with wild eyes as if he needed no permission, only acknowledgement, while Miss pricked his ears and still seemed to doubt whether the moment for a mad dash had come. Dennison's sleigh was soon approached, matched, and passed, only to soon be lost at the distance, and it would be no more than a black spot in the white snow. As Nicholas moved further away, the ringing of the bells from Dennison's sleigh grew fainter and fainter, only the shouts and songs of the mummers behind rang through the calm, clear air. On you go, my beauties. Nicholas held firmly to the reins, but had no need to raise his whip. 
magic and Nitz knew the game and knew the game was nearly won. The cutter seemed to leap forward, but the sharp air that cut the girls' faces and the flying pace of the two horses gave them an uncertain idea of just how fast they were going. Nicholas glanced back at the three other teamsters. They were shouting and urging their spans with cries and cracking of whips so as not to be quite left behind. Magic and Nitz kept charging steadily along, their withers pulling evenly on the whipple tree, each keeping up their punishing pace, quite ready to go twice as fast the moment they should be called upon. But, just as suddenly as the starry, starry night seemed to whip them up into the air, and the sparkling moonlit whiteness of the snow beneath seemed to be receding below them, Nicholas, for a moment, felt lost. It was only a moment, but it felt like an eternity until just as suddenly he regained himself as he approached the top of Danny Bay and then cleared past John Dennison's old hunting cabin and into the main section of Lake Obiongo. That was his hunting place. So that must be the old McLaughlin depot up on the left. No, I don't know where we are. This is all new and unfamiliar to me. God only knows where we are. But no matter himself as having a lunacy worse than nine-toed Rudy, an old man of supreme misplaced confidence. Nicholas laughed out loud and smacking his whip in the air, he turned his team left and went straight ahead. Dennison did the same with his horses and then turned his face to his passengers behind, all fringed with frost and looking as if imminent death lay freezing might not be far off as they flew onward. Steady there, young sir, he called out to Peter, who looked as if he might soon be meeting his maker. Leaning forward with a click of his tongue, Dennison pulled back on his reins and urged his horses in their turn to reduce their speed. Before long, Dennison watched as the black spot far ahead suddenly disappeared somewhere between the dark, brilliant heavens and the frozen white sparkling of the lake. When it did, he smiled to himself and looked happily to his team, now walking along somewhere between a gallop and a trot. The young lad had done it all right, he thought to himself. Nicholas will be just like his father, an officer and a gentleman. I hope, though, he doesn't seem ruined before he sees his own happiness. The old hunter surprised himself as he again spotted Nicholas far beyond his own horse's head. The army officer's sleigh bells had caught a flash of moonlight, and Dennison could just see Nicholas' cover fly up the shoreline towards the depot, like a lightning flash amidst a cloud of fine snow picked up by the horses. Maybe a mile ahead, there was a shower of snow dust thrown up by the runners hitting the shore. The two women, dressed as men and all wrapped up in bear skins, squealed and rocked with giddy delight as the team struggled through the precipice, their shadows crossing and mingling on the snow. Then Nicholas, moderating his speed, looked about him. On every side there stretched a fairy sea, the depot strewn with stars and flooded by the Milky Way. In a second that seemed to last an eternity, Nicholas took in all its wonder and thought for a moment how he had grown up there with old Mrs. Steve, her chore boy for seven summers when he was out of school, listening to her stories about Eddie Steve, the love of her life. As Nicholas grew, how he had hoped, once he had gotten to be a man, that one day he too would be that much in love. And then, just as suddenly, he thought of Pete now, Alone in the forest, albeit with hundreds of teamsters and lumberjacks all ready to do her bidding, but still alone. Alone, but for her gaggle of dogs. We are going where fate directs, or as heaven may guide us, to 
Nicholas took it all in. He again let his imagination run wild. He thought he was in some enchanted forest as he got down and went forward to magic and knits and pretended to talk to his team, all the while feeding them both some oats from his pocket. The black shadows lie across the flooring of diamonds and mix with the sparkling of gems. That might be a fairy palace out there, built of large blocks of marble and jeweled tiles. Did I not hear the howl of wild beasts in the distance? Supposing it were only Mrs. Skeeds that I am coming to after all. On my word, it would be no less miraculous to have reached port after steering so completely at random. It was, in fact, Pete Skeeds, for he could see her cook, Angie, coming out on the balcony with a lantern and then coming down to meet them, only too glad of this unexpected diversion. Who is there? Mummers, miss, but they look an awful lot like the Gangibals. Those are all old Vines teams. Pete Skeed was a commanding personality in spectacles and a flowing dressing gown. As everyone crowded into her large square timber home, she was sitting by her fireplace, surrounded by her dogs, who seemed to take the intruders in stride, as if, under all those disguises, the dogs knew exactly who those friendly faces belonged to. Pete had been doing her best to amuse herself over Christmas by modeling heads in wax and tracing the shadows they cast on the wall. But when she heard the sleighs coming up to the house, she rose and walked to the window and saw hussars, witches, clowns, and bears rubbing their faces, which were scorched by the cold and covered with rime, or shaking the snow off their clothes. As soon as they had cast off their furs, they rushed into her large parlor, which was hastily lighted up. Dennison, the clown and Nicholas, the Marquise, performed a dance, while the others stood close along the wall, the dog shifting about with curiosity, if not with grief. It is impossible to know who is who. That really Natasha. Look at her. Does not she remind you of someone? Edward, how fine you are, and how beautifully you dance. Oh, and that splendid Circassian. Why it is Sonia? What a kind and delightful surprise. We were so desperately dull. Ho, oh, oh, what a beautiful bazaar. A real marquee with pretty woman's hair. Or a real monkey of a chore boy. Which is he, I wonder? I cannot look at you without laughing. They all shouted and laughed and talked at once at the top of their voices. Natasha, to whom all of Mrs. Steve's help had always been devoted, soon vanished with them to their own rooms, 
where blackened corks and various articles of men's clothing were brought to them and clutched by bare arms through a half-open door. Ten minutes later, all the young maids of the house rejoined the company, equally unrecognizable. Mrs. Ski, coming and going among them all, with her spectacles on her nose and a quiet smile, had seats arranged and a supper laid out for the visitors, masters and servants alike. She looked straight in the face of each in turn, pretending not to recognize one of the motley crew, not even one of her own dogs who had been made up as a little mummer clown. That one, who is she? Mrs. Speed asked as she turned to Angie after stopping at Charlie, who in fact was her favorite dog. One of the dancing girls is a dog. Perhaps not in full duty. Held his toes, checked his paws, and you, gallant bizarre, what regiment do you belong to? She was addressing Natasha. Give some to steal it to this Turkish lady. It is not forbidden by her religion, I believe. At the sight of some of the reckless dancing which the mummers performed under the shelter of their disguise, Mrs. Skeed could not help hiding her face in her handkerchief, while her distinguished patrician self shook with uncontrollable laughter. The laugh of a kindly matron, frankly jovial and gay. When they had danced all the national dances, ending with the horror booty, old Mrs. Skeed placed everyone, both masters and servants, in a large circle, holding a cord with a ring and a silver dollar, and for a while they played games. An hour afterwards, when the finery was the worst for wear and heat and laughter had removed much of the fireplace smoke, Mrs. Skeed finally admitted that she could recognize them, complimented the girls on the success of their disguise, and thanked the whole party for the amusement they had given her. Supper was served for the company and for the servants as well. Natasha, you should try your fortune in the storeroom over there, though it might be enough to frighten you. Why? Oh, you would never dare to do it. You must be very brave to do it. Um, I will. I, I will. I won't. I can't go. Well, I will go. Tell us again what happened to that young scullery maid we had when she went to the storeroom that time. Once a young maid we employed here years ago went to the storeroom, taking with her a plate with a knife and fork, which is what you must do. And she waited. Suddenly, she heard sleigh bells. Someone was coming. Then the front door opened, and from the storeroom, she saw an officer walk into the great room. A real live officer, at least so he seemed, who sat down opposite to her where the second cover was laid. Oh, how wonderful! And he spoke to her? Really spoke? Yes, just as if he had really been a man. He begged and prayed her to listen to him, and all she had to do was listen. But she was much too frightened. She covered her face with her hands, and he clasped her in his arms. Luckily, some girls who were on watch rushed in when she screamed. Why do you terrify them with such nonsense? But, madame... You know you wanted to try your fortune there, too. And if you want to try your fortune, what do you have to do? Quite simple. The storeroom will never work again to produce such a result. You must go instead to the barn and listen carefully to gain such an advantage as to see your fortune. If you hear thrashing, it is for ill will. If you hear grain dropping, that is good. Tell us, Pete, what happened to you in the barn? It is so long ago that I have quite forgotten. 
Besides, not one of you is brave enough to try it. Yes, I'll go. Let me go. Sonia, go by all means. That is, if you're not too afraid. May I go, Mrs. Steed? Now, whether playing games or sitting quietly and chatting, Nicholas had not left Sonia's side the whole evening. He felt as if he had seen her for the first time and only just now appreciated all her merits. Bright, bewitchingly pretty in her quaint costume, and excited as she so very rarely was, she had completely fascinated him. What a simpleton I've been. Responding to her sparkling brown eyes and that triumphant smile which had revealed to Nicholas a little dimple at the tip of her mustache that he had never observed before. I'm afraid of nothing. She rose, asked her way to the barn and about every detail as to what she was to expect. Then she threw a fur cloak over her shoulders, glanced at Nicholas, and got up and went out. She hurried along a corridor and down a back stairs, while Nicholas, saying that the heat of the room was too much for him, slipped out the front entrance. It was as cold as ever, and the moon seemed to be shining even more brightly than before. The snow at her feet was strewn with stars, while the Pleiades overhead twinkled in the deep gloom of the sky. Sonia soon looked away from them, back to the gleaming earth in its radiant mantle of ermine. Nicholas hurried along outside the front of the house, turned the corner, and went past the side door where Sonia had just come out. Halfway to the barn, stacks of wood in the full moonlight threw their shadows on the path, and beyond, an alley of lilac trees traced a tangled pattern on the snow with the fine crossed lines of their leafless twigs. The beams of the house and its snow-laden roof looked as if they had been hewn out of a block of opal with iridescent lights where the eaves caught the silvery moonlight. Suddenly, a bough fell crashing off a tree in the garden, and then all was still again. Sonia's heart beat high with gladness, as if she were drinking in not common air, but some life-giving elixir of eternal youth and joy. Straight on, if you please, miss. Hurry along, and on no account look behind you. I'm not afraid. Sonia's little moccasins seemed to float along the stone steps before making a crackling sound on a rough carpet of old snow, glazed with a paper-thin layer of hollow ice. Suddenly, she stopped, turned, and ran to meet Nicholas, who was a couple of yards behind her. And yet, not the Nicholas of everyday life. What had transfigured him so completely? What is, was it his costume with the frizzed-out hair, or was it that radiant smile which he so rarely wore and which at this moment illumined his face? Nicholas looked into her eyes, but could not speak out loud. Sonia is quite unlike herself, and yet she is herself. Nicholas stood facing her, his frosted breath entangled with hers. He looked down at the sweet little face in the moonlight. He slipped his arms under the fur cloak that wrapped her and drew her to him. He kissed her lips softly. They tasted of the burned cork that had blackened her mustache. Nicholas. Sonia. <laughs> they whispered each other's name, and Sonia put her little hands around Nicholas's face. Then, hand in hand, they ran wildly to the barn and back again as if they had seen a ghost. They then stopped kissed once more, and, composing themselves, each went in by the different doors they had separately come out of earlier. Natasha, who had noted everything, 
managed it so that she and Mrs. Dennison went back to Mount Aviunga in Mr. Dennison's sleigh while she got her younger brother, Peter, to go with Nicholas and Sonia in the lead cutter. Nicholas was in no hurry to get home. He could not help looking at Sonia and trying to find under her disguise the true Sonia, his Sonia, from whom nothing now could ever part him. The magical effects of moonlight, the remembrance of that kiss on her sweet lips, the dizzy flight of the snow-clad ground under the horse's hoofs, the black sky studded with diamonds that bent over their heads, the icy air that seemed to give vigor to his lungs, all that was enough to make Nicholas fancy that he had been transported to some land of magic as he walked back to Sonia, settling into the cutter. Sonia, are you not cold? No. And you? Nicholas pulled up, and giving the reins to Peter to drive, walked back to the second sleigh to where Natasha was now sitting. Listen, I have made up my mind to tell Sonia. You've spoken to her? Oh, Natasha, how queer that mustache makes you look. Are you glad? Glad? I'm delighted. I did not say anything, you know, but I've been so vexed with you. She is a jewel, a heart of gold. I, I'm often naughty, and I have no right to have all the happiness to myself now. Go, go back and tell her. No, wait one minute. Mercy, how funny you look. Nicholas looked at his sister closely, and, as if for the first time, discovered in her face a tenderness that struck him deeply. Natasha, is there not some magic at the bottom of it all? You have acted very wisely. Go! Uh, one last thing. If I had ever seen you look as you do at this moment, I should have asked your advice and would have obeyed you whatever you had bid me to do, and all would have gone well. So, you are glad? I am. Yes, yes, of course you are. I was quite angry with Mama the other day about you two. Mama would have it that Sonia was running after you. I will not e allow anyone to say, no, not even think anything evil of her. For Sonia is sweetness and truth itself. Nicholas left his sister and in a few long strides approached his own sleigh where the little Circassian received him with a smile from under her fur hood. And the Circassian was Sonia, and Sonia beyond a doubt would be his beloved. And he would ask her to be his wife this very night. When they got home, the two girls went into Mrs. Gangeball's room and gave her an account of their expedition. Sonia was thoughtfully silent throughout while Natasha did all the talking. But Mrs. Gangeball knew that something tremendous had happened to the poor girl was in her eyes and on her smiling lips. It didn't take her long to come to terms with it. The two girls then went to their own room. Without stopping to wipe off their mustaches, they stood chattering as they undressed. They had so much to say of their happiness, their future prospects, and the friendship between their future husbands. But, oh, when will it be? I'm so afraid it will never come to pass. Natasha went toward a table on which two looking-glasses stood. Sit down and look in the glass. Perhaps you'll see something about it. Natasha lit two candles and seated herself. <laughs> I certainly see a pair of mustaches. You should not laugh. Natasha settled herself to gaze without blinking into the mirror. She put on a solemn face and sat in silence for some time, wondering what she should see. 
would a coffin rise before her? Would Gus Dennison presently stand revealed against the confused background in the shining glass? Natasha's eyes were weary and could hardly distinguish even the flickering light of the candles. And despite the best will in the world, she could see nothing, not even a spot to suggest the image of either a coffin or of a human form. Finally, Natasha rose up and moved away from the mirrors. Why do other people see things and I never see anything at all? Take my place on you. You must look for yourself. And for me, too. I'm so frightened. If I could, but no. Sonia sat down and fixed her eyes on the mirror. If I do see something, you must not laugh as you always do. It will make everything disappear. Yes, I know you're sure to see something. You did last year. For three minutes, they waited in total silence. She's sure to see something. Natasha? You saw something? What did you see? Sonia had seen nothing. Her eyes were getting dim and she was on the point of giving it up when Natasha's exclamation had stopped her. Sonia did not want to disappoint either of them, but there is nothing so tiring as sitting motionless. Sonia did not know why Natasha had called out and then hidden her face. Did, did, did you see him? Yes, I saw him. Sonia was not quite sure whether him meant Nicholas or Gus. Who? Which one? Sonia could not voice what she was thinking right at that moment. Why not make Natasha believe I saw something? A great many people have done so before, and no one can prove the contrary. I saw Gus. How? Standing up or lying down? I saw him. Well, at first there was nothing, and then suddenly I saw him lying down. Gus? Lying down? Is he ill? Not at all, not at all. On the contrary, he seemed quite cheerful. And then? then? Saw him with then? I saw only confusion. Red and blue. When, when will we come back, Sonia? When shall I see him again? Oh, God, I'm afraid for him. Af- afraid of everything. Without listening to Sonia's attempts at comfort, Natasha slipped into bed, and long after the lights were out, she lay motionless but awake, her eyes fixed on the moonshine that came dimly through the frost-embroidered windows. like tonight. And if you want your friends to hear what all the fuss is about, tell them to tune into our podcast this coming Sunday night. It's called The Apiango Line, and it's available for free all over the World Wide Web, simply by downloading your favorite podcast app and subscribing free of charge with your cell phone or tablet. It's where the station keepers post all their favorite local culture and heritage shows about the upper Madawaska Valley. For all of us here with the Apiango Radio Flyers, Jeff Bowman, Leslie Betts, Lois LaSole, Brian and Carol Peterson, Linda Schulist, Lynn Stewart, Martin Yakabuski, 
and especially from our producer and writer, Barry Conway, we'd like to wish you a bountiful Christmas and a very contented New Year. I'm Kristen Marchand. Good day from the old train station at Barry's Bay here in the heart of the upper Madawaska Valley.